0: It's easy sometimes to take for granted the amazing blessing that we have and the sacrifices of so many people, thousands and hundreds of thousands that whose names we will never know this side of the kingdom. But we wanted to just take a minute to acknowledge that simple fact this morning and those of you who have served, those of you who have been in support and those of you families who have lost friends and family members, I just want to say thank you this morning. Memorial Day is a a Memorial Day weekend as this is at this point today is an important and and appropriate time for us to reflect. We get to reflect on what people have done. And and it's in these days, these times, when we kind of get our mind around the idea that people who have gone before us have made it possible for us to have and be what we are this morning. And the Bible is about memorials. There are a lot of things in the Bible that are about memorializing things. One is this day where we stand, this, this Sabbath, this 24-hour period, is actually, uh, it's not, it's not in, in its first place designed to be something of a restriction. I know that we so often teach it as a restriction, but that's really not what it's intended to be. It's intended to be a remembrance. It's intended to lock into our brain on a weekly basis that we did not crawl out of the primordial slime at some point, billion or millions of years ago. And we did not come from a single-celled animal from the primordial slime who beat the 49 to the 160th odds and survived. We didn't come from grapes and apes, because you realize that if it's evolution, it's both grapes and apes in your family, that you came as a direct result onto a planet prepared for you from the hand of a God who made you simply for the joy of of loving Him. That's what this is about. A remembrance. A weekly reminder of that fact. Man, I think God knew today was coming. He knew that the world would constantly be making up myths to try to figure out how we got here. And He knew that we would get to the point where we would have something we liked better than the story at the beginning In the beginning, God created. And so, as we consider, look at the person next to you. Don't say anything, just look at them. And recognize them as an intention of God. There are no accidents in the room today only intentions as we kind of get a start on the next chapter of the book of Matthew I want to I want to put a memorial into your mind I want you to consider the memorial that is could you clean those I was going to pull my shirt out, but I want to remind you of a memorial that went with Israel for about 1,500 years before the arrival of Christ. For about 1,500 years, once a year in the spring, the people of Israel would get together with something similar to Thanksgiving Day. And they would tell the story of how it was that they ended up in the promised land. They would memorialize the blood on the doorpost. That meant that the angel would pass over that space and that their firstborn son would live through the night. They would memorialize the exodus from Egypt they would memorialize their experience with God as He walked them through the desert, an inhospitable environment, and brought them to a place of great blessing. 1,500 years the story was told, every year at Passover. Seven days of unleavened bread, an extra couple of Sabbaths, and a chance to remember how they got to to be the children of God by His choice, His blessing, His selection, His protection, how they became the the inhabitants of a land that He chose in houses not built by them in vineyards not planted by them. Every year, they stopped to memorialize. Can I, just, can I just say that this is a really good idea? There's, there need to be things that you're remembering, that you're memorializing with your family, particularly with your children. From a very young age, you should be sitting them down and sharing things and talking about things. You need to tell them the story of your conversion until they're sick of it. You need to just memorialize it and, and standardize certain things in your household so that you can pass on to the next generation the blessings that you've received in the previous generations. If, it's, if the greatest story in your family's history happened to your great-great-grandfather, tell that one. Share with them the reason why Friday night when the sun sets, you gather your family around the table. Because Jesus made you. You are not an accident. Share with them the blessings of what it means every year when we celebrate the resurrection to, to, to recognize the value of an empty tomb. Share with them every chance you get the milestones of your life as memorial of what God has done so that they have anchor points to set sail from in their own. This morning as we enter through Matthew 1 into Matthew chapter 2, I just want to kind of kind of remind you, So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. You shall be reminded of what God has done. Anybody know what holiday was being celebrated when Jesus entered the tomb? It was the Passover. It was this one. Any, anybody, remember, anybody remember that that day, that day was the day when the blood of the Lamb was spilled, placed on the doorpost, so that the children, the family would be protected by the blood. And as it ran down the cross, spilled out on the planet, it flowed round the world to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people and offered blood for them. The memorial that Israel had been saving themselves up for the memorial that Israel had been continuously putting forward to their families came into a collision with its respondent, correspondent part in Christ that day. As Matthew opens up the book, as he writes the tract for the Jewish Christians, the Jewish uh, non-Christians, to try to explain to them why they should follow this Messiah. As he writes it out for them, he starts to try to explain to them the connection with their own history, with their own bloodline, with their own DNA. He works his way through the story, trying to explain it all to them. Remember, he tells them about Jesus' heritage. He tells them about Jesus being born miraculously, of a virgin. So all this was done. First chapter. All of this was done. Mary being told about, the, about this by the angel. Joseph being awakened in the night from his dream. So all of this was done that might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Guys, he comes from the right heritage, the right bloodline. Blood sprinkled with the blood of Gentiles. Expand your understanding of who he is and what he's done. He came through a birth by a virgin through the the empowering of the Holy Spirit. That God entered the earth as a tiny little speck and grew through the process you grew through. Broke through the womb and entered our world. He's trying to help them and us understand that Jesus Christ was no accidental birth either. No ordinary birth either. He was a direct descendant of Abraham. A direct descendant of David. He was the intentional act of God. And he was the plan for our rescue. He introduces the Facts because the story is so important. You have to build the story from the bottom up. Established Jesus' bloodline. He argues that he was born of God, and then we start chapter 2, shows that he is from the right place. <laughs> the first, first century, there was a bit of messianic fever going on. You've got to understand why. 1,500 years they've been talking about promised land, rescue from Egypt, right? Got that part? In the middle of the last 1,500 years, the Babylonians came marching into town, grabbed a bunch of them, hauled them off, and not everybody came home. Some of their family and friends still live in Babylon. There's a Babylonian exile going on now. And it's been hundreds of years since they were allowed to leave Babylon. Hundreds of years. Centuries people have stayed. And up until recently with the, uh, the persecution of Jews by Islamic Islamists, Until recently, there were massive numbers of Jews in modern-day Persia, which is Iran, and modern-day Babylon, which is Iraq, and modern-day Assyria, which is kind of northern Iraq up near the Russian border. Millions of Jews lived there for thousands of years after the Babylonian exile. And so when they are home, they know they are a divided family. They know that not everybody came back. And so as they share the Passover story, they share the Passover story with a bit of longing because though everyone came out of the Exodus from Egypt, not everybody came out of the Exodus from Babylon. Some people prefer to stay in Babylon rather than return to the Promised Land. Is that still true? And so with longing, they've been telling the story for the last 600 years or so. And a couple hundred years ago. Now you've got to understand the scope of this thing because... America is such a young country. We think of everything like everything in the world has happened in the last 200 years. No, no, no. 200 years ago, in in Israel's clock, in the 1500 year story of these people in a promised land with a promise from God, 200 years ago there was an uprising against the weakening Greek Empire, and a couple and some brothers known as the Maccabees kicked the Greeks. Out of, out of the promised land. And they were free. You know, it, it was celebrated like 4th of July. You know, we kicked the Brits out. Some came back, Mark. More and more, taking over the place. It's, it's celebrated just like that. The Greeks are gone. They're, they're free. They have sacrificed. People have worked and and sweated and bled and died so that they could have that freedom. And for like almost 200 years, they were free of Greeks. They were free of Babylonians. They were free of Assyrians. Nobody was in charge of them but them. They were a free, independent country. And now, just for the last few decades, Rome has decided that it wants to control this too. You see, they were left to one of the, be the last one of the territories, one of the last territories Rome captures in the region. They, they want Egypt. Egypt's really important. They want Greece. That's really important. They want Babylon. That's really important. And this little backwater nation who's really grumpy and hard to deal with, right in the middle of all this, we'll kind of leave them till we get around to these others. Let's deal with the big fish, and then we'll come into this little pond and deal with that perch later. And so they finally, over the last few decades, have grabbed hold of the perch and made it behave. And they've built a little Roman castle right on the wall of the temple. And they have their guards marching around in their helmets with their spears and their swords, spearing into the temple to make sure nobody's messing around. And they've been telling the story of the Passover for the last several decades. And the Egypt, in the mind of every Jew in Israel, has a shorter name, has a Roman appearance. And when they think of the Passover and the Exodus and what God will do when He will finally rid them of this last oppressive power, the Romans are on their mind. And every year, every Passover, and sometimes every day, they're reminded that they are not free. That they have an overlord who even watches them in church. And they want to get rid of them. And fervor is rising for a Messiah who will deal with this problem. And that fervor has just built and built, and various Messianic characters have popped up and said, it's me, it's me, it's me, it's me. And various groups have gathered various followings. But nothing has panned out. And Matthew starts the book in the context of those heartbeats. In the context of those thoughts and those memorials. In the context of that longing for freedom from the Romans. In that context... Matthew starts chapter 1. He's from the right lineage. And beyond that, guys, he doesn't just have the blood of David and Abraham. He has the very nature of God. Yeah, virgin birth. Matthew, or Matthew is t- telling him, look, we, we have the picture, the story in Isaiah. And I'm telling you, Jesus is the final fulfillment of that story. And he closes out The chapter, laying that all in front of them, in front of their messianic hopes, on top of their desire to be free of Rome, he starts to lay out the picture. We've got the right place, or we've got the right person with the right blood, and he's been added another layer. You can't even imagine the layer. He's been added the layer of God's own blood. God's DNA. Moabic DNA. Gentile DNA. Mixed with Jewish DNA, mixed with divine DNA. That's who we have as we close the book or the chapter in Matthew. But not a single contemporary prophet or preacher was ready. Stop and think about that for a second. Not a single contemporary prophet or preacher was ready. When Jesus was born. Every other time in history. Something this big was going on. There was people prepping Israel for it. But Israel had pushed one idea for so long. That they had silenced anyone. Who had a different thought. Not a scholar or a poet. Has written for or about the coming of Jesus. So into this blank canvas, Matthew starts to write. Right bloodline, and bigger than you can imagine bloodline. But somewhere off in the east, as he starts the beginning of chapter 2, he says, somewhere out east there was a group watching. Do you remember when Jesus came walking, came came, came riding into Jerusalem on the donkey? Remember the story? Some of you may remember the story. He comes, he comes riding down the Mount of Olives. If you've been to the Mount of Olives, you can, you can look into Jerusalem from the top of Mount of Olives. You can look into the temple from the top of Mount of Olives. As you come down the Mount of Olives, it's just a spectacular beautiful scenery of the of the city and the temple and and it's just as you come in you can take it all in at one time and as jesus is coming off the mount of olives on on the on the back of a donkey as predicted by the way from by hosea as he's coming down into the city as he's riding in the pharisees rise up and say stop these people from shouting hosanna to the son of david Stop these people from proclaiming that you are the Messianic King. David returned. Stop them. Silence them. Do you remember what Jesus said? If I silence them, the stones, the rocks will cry out. So, off in that foreign land, east of here, way east of here, Babylon, Persia, off to the east, there are some guys. We don't know how many guys. I know it's traditional to say three, but there are three gifts. We don't know how many people. We know there are multiple, so it could be a two, and it could be 50. There could have been a whole caravan of people who came from the east. But they come, because off in the east, a stone cries out. Or a block of ice flying through space. Or a big pile of gas burning up. Or a really bright cadre of angels—we don't know—but something cries out that's not human. And off somewhere east, someone's watching. They come in to Jerusalem with a simple message: "We've come, rode across the desert, came for days and weeks." to get here because we saw his star in the east where were the watchers in the heavens in Jerusalem where were the people who should have seen the star that lived in Galilee or lived around Jerusalem or Judea where were the where were the people of God who were supposed to be watching Nobody was there. No one at home was even searching the sky for the appearance of the Messiah. But out east were these guys. They're not, they're not one of us. They're not like us. They're those folks. But they're watching. And they see the star. And they don't just see it. They act on it. They make the preparations. They get themselves moving. They take the risk of this long journey for one simple reason. Do you remember why? Do remember what they told Herod when they got to the promised land and they went to the place where they thought a king would be recognized? Certainly some scholar, some prophet, some poet, somebody here in the king's house will know about the arrival of of this star out of Jacob. And Herod's clueless. He, he's been really busy, Herod. I mean, he's built so many spectacular things, Herod has. I mean, his house down on the Mediterranean, I mean, it had to have taken an army of people years to build. It's, it's, it's magnificent. It, it's, it's as long as a couple of city blocks. It's got, it's got pools down by the ocean where he's got warm water and medium water and cool water and the final water is the actual ocean itself washing into the pool and filling it up at high tide. He's been really busy. I mean, he's he's been decorating and beautifying the temple. It's more spectacular after Herod touches it than it's been in hundreds of years. I mean, he's been really busy. South of Bethlehem, he has taken an entire mountain down, built a city under another mountain or a palace under another mountain and covered it with the dirt from the first mountain so he could hide in there just in case anybody showed up. Out in Masada... He's taken this flat plateau and he's converted it into both a palace and a refuge for himself should his enemies come looking for him. he has been really busy, too busy to be watching the sky to see if some Messiah might be coming. Hmm. If the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. Herod was both, both bad and busy, and sometimes just busy being bad. When the nest message needed to be sent, there was nobody to send it through. There was no preacher in Israel to send it through. There was no prophet who was listening for God's voice to send the message when Mary needed someone to come and tell her what was going on he had to send an angel he had to send someone from heaven because no one from earth was listening close enough for him to tell them When Joseph needed someone to tell him what his next step step was, there was no one like Nathan who was there for his great-great-great-great-grandfather David to to point him in a new direction. God had to send an angel. Because though Israel was fervently looking for a Messiah, they weren't looking for Jesus. Though Israel had, had thought... This is the time surely let's get rid of the Romans God you you have to be coming soon you came like Moses it's why Jesus is often de- declared to be that prophet that word that prophet means one like Moses are you that prophet that question is are you the one Moses told us about who would act like Moses and rescue us from this horrible Roman bondage? And the answer actually was yes, but it wasn't the yes they were looking for. What's what's the picture that you painted in your brain of who's coming for you? And does it hold any biblical water? What what have you designed your picture of God around? Who are you waiting for? Are you okay if when Jesus comes in the clouds, He doesn't line up with what you had in mind? Chances are He's not going to. Thank God for the Magi. These foreigners with foreign blood from a forsaken land. Reading that really weird oddball prophet story. You know who says there will be a star out of Jacob, right? It's Balaam. We're not sure who Balaam's actually serving. He tries all kind, all manner of crazy behaviors. That seems to be the prophet these people have been reading because when they're looking for a star, there's only one predicted star. And it's from Balaam's prophecy when he is trying to curse Israel and God won't let him. And he says, there will be a star out of Jacob. It's the only one mentioned. These foreigners... In their forsaken land, and with their weird oddball prophet, are, got, are getting it right. <sighs> Do you hate it when God messes with your plan? When Matthew's telling the story, he's upsetting everybody's apple cart. This is how it's going to work. This is the bloodline of Jesus, and it's got some mingling in there. And by the way, it's not really all human. He's both human and divine. He was born in the right city. He was born of the right parents. But he's not what you're expecting. he says anything, he says, God is not bound. God is not locked into our perceptions, nor is he locked into our expectations. God is not bound by what I expect. God is not forced into the box of my building. He's made great concessions for my understanding, but he's not on my plan. I'm on His. And the sooner I recognize that, the better this relationship is going to go. If I can realize I'm not in charge of the universe for a day, maybe that'll be the first Sabbath I actually keep. So Matthew says he's from the right bloodline. Though I have to tell you guys, there are some Gentiles in there, and they seem to all be girls. <laughs> He's got girl Gentiles in his background. And why does Matthew even bring that up? I'm sure that the Pharisees reading that first first few verses of Matthew's tract, said, "Why is he bringing up the girls?" And then there's that shameful story of his birth that is hard to buy and yet fits right in the prophet's statement. A virgin will be with child and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with. chapter 2 says when he he was born now when he was born in Bethlehem the city of David the, the city of David's birth and when he was a young guy some foreigners with some crazy thoughts from a prophet we're not sure about came to worship because they recognized the star in the east and followed it to the bedside of the king. If there's anything I have to say to you this morning, it's be careful about what you're planning for God. We are a people who have for the last 2,000 years, been listening to and telling a story about the coming of the final day and the Messiah's return. As Christians, for 2,000 years, we've been telling the story of the return of the Messiah. And as Seventh-day Adventists, for almost 200 years, we've been specifically aiming that... that, that that picture at a a very narrow target and the target has gotten very specific in some folks' mind and there are some among us who think they can pick the day and the time and the arrival and how he's going to look and how he's going to dress and what he's going to say and they've got it so figured out that it scares me honestly because the Pharisees had it down to the letter. They had it all figured out and he didn't do what they expected so they rejected him. Be careful what picture you're building because God has a way of breaking out of your box. And some some folks from east of here might show up one day with an answer you didn't expect. I'm not predicting anything I'm just saying be careful what box you put him in when Jesus comes we will all be shocked will we all be ready If there's one question Christians have been asking for those entire 2,000 years, it's been, how will I know, how would I be ready for Jesus to come? I will give you the simple answer. It is not a chart. It's a relationship. It's built off you, not knowing the event, but knowing the arriver. Knowing the one who's coming so well that if he's not completely in your box, you still recognize him. There were those few. There were the, 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 the few, those, those couple in the, in the sanctuary when Jesus is taken, Simeon recognizes him immediately because he'd been walking with the Lord for his entire life. Those, those no-account shepherds out in their fields when an angel said, we know who you're wanting to go see. He's over here. And by the way, you're going to find him wrapped in clothes of poverty. When the Magi showed up to Jerusalem expecting to find a king in a palace, they were led to Bethlehem to find a king in a little tiny place probably by now, toddling around, and can you imagine trying to teach God to speak? Say, Mama. The voice that spoke the earth into existence. And he put himself in the hands of a young woman from Nazareth. Out of the box. Way out of the box. And so my friend, a relationship every day, praying, seeking the Lord, studying your word, that's the answer to how I'm ready for Jesus to come. Because he's likely to blow the wheels off our plan. Let's pray. Father God, it is it is way beyond our comprehension what you have in mind. We expect to see Jesus come. We hope that as that Takes place, we will be there. We'd like to see it live. But ultimately, we just want to have such a relationship with you that we know who you are. That the voice that shouts, raises the dead, echoes a familiar sound in our ears. Then we see you rise out of the east. A small cloud about the size of man's hand. There will be among those who know who you are. Look up into the heavens. And say, this is our God. We have waited for Him. And He will save us.